morning, church. It's a privilege to be able to be with you today and bring the word of God to you guys this morning. And um, last time I spoke to you guys, I spoke out of Ephesians chapter one. Going to be back in the book of Ephesians today that we're going to get into here in just a little bit. Um, thanks for coming out on this rainy morning, time changing and everything. Uh, glad to see you here. Uh, I'd imagine a lot of you guys would profess faith. A lot of you guys would say that, that I'm a believer, that I have a relationship with Jesus, came here to church this morning, not that that makes you a believer, it makes you have a relationship with Jesus, but um, I would imagine a lot of you more than just checking a box on a survey saying I'm a Christian, which is what most people in the South would do, would say, yes, I, I know the Lord, I, I follow Jesus, I am a follower of Jesus. And um, that is something that is a gift, is a, a gift that is received uh, by grace through faith. And in the book of Ephesians in chapter two, we find that we were dead and that God made us alive in Christ. Our salvation is something that God does. We simply receive that. There's, there's no role that we play in, in, in our salvation. We can only believe, believe on what Christ has done for us. Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So salvation is a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural thing that happens. It's not rule keeping and it separates Christianity, true Christianity from all other belief systems in the world. You see the world promotes this outside in theology. The world is constantly trying to see what can I do to be better? What can I do if there is a heaven? How can I achieve that? How can I get there? And it's consumed with what I can do to be a better person. And it carries over, you know, doing youth ministry, it carries over to our young people because often their view of Christianity is I go to church at this church, this person goes to church at this church, and um, my friends do these bad things, and I try not to do these bad things. The world is consumed with rules that teach us what's moral and what's not moral. But the problem is that's a moving target. It's a moving goalpost, right? Because what was moral 100 years ago is different than what's moral today is different than what's gonna be moral 100 years from today. But Jesus, on the other hand, he pr promotes an inside out transformation. He promotes new roots, um, a, a new heart and, and leads to new desires that we have. So we don't contribute to our salvation. It's an inside out process. But what about as a believer? I have received Jesus into my life. How do I live each, each day? How do I live now? And in Paul's writing, writings, he gives us constant lessons on what the new life with Jesus should look like, what the new life with Jesus is all about. He says, this is how you were saved, and this is now how this new life in Christ should look. So for, through the first three chapters in Ephesians, it's just full of theology. It's full of lessons, full of teaching about how we are saved, and then teaching about all of these benefits that we have as believers and, and, and who we are now that we are in Christ. And now he's going to share in, four, in, in chapters four through six, now that we are in Christ, how it is that we should live. So God, God has called his children. He's called you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he's called you to a certain standard of living. Um, he's called you to live holy lives. Now that you living a holy life, you doing what you do, as I've said, that's not gonna save you. That's not gonna make you more or less safe, but it will be an indication of what is most important to you. It'll be an indication of what is Lord of your life. It'll be an indication of what you value most and how you view God. Because as new creations, as followers of Christ, our lives should be different than the old. Uh, if you're a married man in here this morning, I, I would hope, I would imagine that you don't live the same way that you lived when you were a bachelor. You're married now and, and with that comes certain things, one of which includes 
not dating other women. Um, if you have a mansion, if you live in a mansion, you're not going to sleep on a sidewalk because you got a bed, you got a place to stay. If you're an adult, you shouldn't be playing competitive sports against a five-year-old, right? Because the, the things are opposed to one another. If, if you're a man, you're not going to be nursing a baby. At least that used to be a thing, right? So um, as a Christian, you shouldn't be living like the world. The idea is that there's two things that are so diametrically opposed to one another that it doesn't make sense. And so I asked the students and youth, I, I did this message or a variation of this with them when we were going through Ephesians, if I was, because some of you people have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of y'all know what I'm talking about, they're Snapchatting constantly. So I said, if I was Snapchatting a few other girls every day, would you say that I'm, that's cheating on Kelsey? And they're like, yeah, absolutely, they get that. And so, um, They'd call me a cheater in the same way God made us alive in Christ and we came to him by grace through faith and now we choose to live as a child of God rather than of this sinful world. And since God has made you alive, how you look is different. Since I'm married, I don't live like a single guy anymore. Since you have a bed, you don't sleep on a sidewalk. Since you're a Christian, you don't live like the world. First John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So now in Ephesians chapter four, Paul has been talking uh, to the believers in Ephesus, that's who he's writing to, about how they have a place, a role to play in the church. Every single believer has a duty, has a role to play in service to the body. And in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. Now, saints are not some special higher group of believers. Saints are those who are believers, those who are in Christ. And when it says that he gives them a role to play in the ministry, Every single one of us, you think of a lot of times of the pastor, as the pastor is the minister, but all of us are ministers too because ministering just means serving. So all of us are saints, we're believers, and we are to be serving. The church leadership exists, ultimately it shouldn't exist to entertain the saints, to say things, to make the saints feel good, but to equip the saints for service. And to rightly serve the body, we need to be living that new life that is set apart, that is in Christ. So he's gonna continue on with that thought and he's gonna contrast the old person with how the new person should be living. And so we're gonna be, for the rest of the time, camping out here in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. I wanna read it and then we're gonna um, dive deeper into it. It says, starting in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. Christian life is a transformation, the greatest transformation that ever could happen to you, the greatest thing that could ever happen in your life. It's not some religion that's sprinkled in here or there. It's going from a lost, dead, separated from God, child of wrath, to a born again, alive, found child of God. And now we should live like it. So I want us to look at the before picture 
to begin. And the first thing I want us to see in the before picture here that he paints is, is a futile mind. In verse 17, reading it again, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So in the ESV it says, now this. In some of your translations it, it might say, therefore. And he's going back to what he just talked about, equipping the saints for ministry. So he's saying, therefore, since you are to be serving in the body... Now this is how you shouldn't be living anymore, and this is how you should be. And when it says he testifies in the Lord, he's saying this is truth from God. This is something that was received from God. We all have this high calling as believers. We have special privileges as believers. And since we do, we should walk like it. We should live like it. Our life should match our calling. In 1 Peter 2.9 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, Christians have this tendency, and the church has a tendency, and and all of it is not bad, but it can become bad, but we have this tendency to want to show the world that we are fun, that we're not that different. And it's a misguided way of trying to get the world to affirm what we're doing. And Christians should live differently, though. We should be seeking to glorify God, not seeking to fit in. Um, ultimately, it's, it's Christ that the world is going to be drawn to. It's not that they see that, man, that those people are really fun. It's Christ, ultimately, that they're going to be drawn to. And in glorifying God, you're going to stand out. And some people are going to approve of that. And some people are going to not like it at all. Some people are going to hate your actions for following Jesus I was reading about this morning uh, an election that just happened in Nigeria, and a Muslim man was, um, was elected, and so it gave many of the Muslim militants there the thought, okay, well, we're going to attack Christians. And so there was a Christian pastor that was murdered this past week because of that. If you're living, if you're following Jesus, there, m- there might be people that don't like it. But that being said, following Christ cannot be dictated, cannot be dictated by how much... Um, by how we believe the unchurched world is going to perceive our actions, it has to be dictated ultimately by God's word. And so it goes on in verse 17, and, and he, there's this phrase that says, as the Gentiles do. So he's saying, don't walk as the Gentiles do. And what's interesting about this is he's writing to the church at Ephesus, which is ultimately made up of Gentile people, non-Jewish people. Um, all believers are Gentiles unless you're a Messianic Jew. Right? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, and that's who he's writing to. And the Jews, if, if you read throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, the Jews looked down on Gentiles. They were pagan people. They thought the things they did were grotesque. Um, they were disgusted by the things that they did, and so they looked down on them. And then they believed, ultimately, because Abraham, because we are the seed of Abraham, we are the offspring of Abraham, we are blood of Abraham, we are the ones that will be saved. And Paul teaches different in Galatians 3, 7. It says, know then... It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham because Jesus has come. He has made a way for Gentiles to be saved. And so um, Gentiles in this passage, when you see that word, it ultimately is representing, though, those who practice sexual immorality, those who were sacrificing to idols, those who worship false gods, who denied the one true God. And he's saying, don't walk like that anymore. Don't live like that anymore. This word walk here, um, there's stuff, a specific way we should be living or we should be walking. The Christian life is a walk. Earlier in Ephesians 2, it tells us how we walked when we were apart from God. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then later on, a few verses later in verse 10, um, it says that we are his workmanship, speaking of those who have been saved, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
It is a walk apart from God and now a walk with God. So as a believer, you should no longer walk, you should no longer live like the old person. Whatever the the misguided way was that you were living before, the sin that plagued your life before, whatever that is, fill in the blank. I no longer walk, I no longer live like this anymore. So so what's it mean when we walk or when we live no longer like the, the unbeliever? Well, it might mean, you know, for, for these young people here, they look, they're going to look really different. They're going to stand out from people in their school. I said that I was a Christian when I was a teenager, and I blended in. I looked like the other people in my school. I was a leader a lot of times, but I was a leader for things that weren't good. It might, it might mean that you look very differently from very different. You live, walk different than even people in your own family. Um, it might mean that you live, walk different than people at your job. Because here's the thing. There's many people, even though we live in a place where a lot of people would say, I'm a Christian. There are lots of people that still allow what is temporary to dictate the eternal rather than the other way around. You see, we neglect things that God has for us throughout our lives that have eternal value because we're so consumed a lot of times with what's temporary. An example might be maybe the Lord has been um, speaking to you. He's been speaking to you through people. He's been speaking to, to you through scripture. You feel like... I need to go on a mission trip, but I only get two weeks, I only get three weeks of vacation, I'm doing these things these two weeks with my family, this week I just feel like I want to rest, it must not be the right time. And then the next year it's not going to be the right time, and then the next year it's not going to be the right time because there's going to be something temporary that is dictating how you make decisions that have eternal value. It might be, um, you know, I'd witness to this person or I invite that person over for dinner, and this is one where um, my wife and I we find ourselves where we're so busy. We got a two and a half year old. We got a nine month old. We don't really have time to do that anymore because we're doing these things. We're watching these kids. And if we get a break, that's like a miracle if they're both asleep at the same time, right? And so we have a reason why we can't do that. A reason that we, we have in our heads, but it's not really a reason. It's not a good reason, even though it sounds like it on the surface. Or I can't go to this prayer meeting or this Bible study because that's the night I relax and I'm watching this Netflix show or whatever the case may be. We let our worldly priorities dictate our faith journey rather than our faith changing what our priorities ultimately are. Believers have a new way to walk. Jesus has turned you in one direction. He's pointed you in another direction. You're walking with him now. We're not to turn back. It goes on at the end of verse 17, and it says um, that the way that we lived or walked before Jesus was in the futility, in the futility of our minds. Futility of thoughts and minds, it means emptiness, uselessness, pointlessness, pointless thoughts. How many of us walk around during the day just, just thinking of nonsense or things that maybe don't have real significance in our lives. I know that I do that. And sometimes it's not necessarily something that's sinful. I mean, it might be, um, it might be sports. It might be hobbies. It might be a relationship um, that you have. It might be that you've got an argument or a fight with someone and you're thinking about how, reconciling it. You're thinking about what you're going to say or how you're going to respond to someone. It might be um, politics. It might be a show that you're watching or binging on Netflix. But ultimately, there's stuff that is garbage that's thrown at us all the time, over and over, and we walk around in the day, and that's the stuff that fills our thoughts. That's the stuff that we're thinking about. And it could also be stuff that's, that's in your head that, that it is sinful, stuff that you wouldn't want anybody else to know about. And we spend hours on social media, hours scrolling Instagram, and, and the, these young people watching TikToks and stuff, and it's all pretty pointless. It all has no eternal value. Ultimately, what it is, is it makes you feel happy. It's this euphoric feeling that you have 
just for a second while you're watching it. It makes you happy, makes you feel good, but it's temporary. It's, I want to be happy, and this makes me feel good, so I'm going to do this right now. And that's what dominates the thoughts of the world, and that's where the world gets a lot of knowledge, knowledge, or wisdom where it comes from, where ideas are made. And this kind of wisdom, this kind of knowledge that the world boasts of is futile before God. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20 says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. It is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. King Solomon, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he writes about how he searched the world for meaning. He tries women. He tries parties. He tries power, riches. He has all of this stuff, everything you could think of. And he concludes that it's all meaningless. Why are so many people depressed? Why is this? Why is that? People are looking for hope, but they're looking for hope in hopeless places. Real hope is found in Jesus. It can't come from things that the world offers. That's why Solomon concludes in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So it says the, mind, the minds of non-believers are futile, and then it goes on from that, and it says that their hearts have grown hard, and some translations might use the word blind. Now, um, I, I would preface this by saying, Joel's been talking about, speaking through Exodus, and we see he talked about Pharaoh's heart and how Pharaoh's heart had grown hard and callous. Now, Pharaoh's heart is not going to be the same kind of hard as, you know, a nine-year-old that's back here in, in Sturkey Kids right now. Um, we, we might have two people, maybe neither one of them have a relationship with the Lord, but one of them, you would acknowledge that a child's heart is more sensitive to the things of God. The second point is a hard heart. Verse 18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. There have been brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds reject God. You can, turn, you can find a debate on YouTube and find a brilliant Christian mind and a brilliant atheist and they're debating, and it seems like they both have great points, right? There's brilliant minds who have rejected the Lord. Um, and if they have, no matter how wise they look in the eyes of the world, they're strangers to what real life and abundant life in Christ is like due to ignorance. Ignorance could mean a lack of understanding. In this case, it comes from hard hearts, as we see in Ephesians 4.18. Um, their hearts have grown hard, and they're in rebellion to God. Now, this doesn't mean that... Um, People who are in rebellion against God can't achieve great things in life. They certainly can. They can achieve great things intellectually, things that the world would say that's amazing. But it means these achievements fall short of true wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Theologian Vaughn said, The thought is not that the unregenerate minds are empty. It is that they are filled with things that lead to nothing. So, you might meet someone, you might have a discussion, a debate with them about religion, about theology or whatever, and um, it seems like they have all the knowledge in the world, but if they reject Jesus, then they are lacking true wisdom. The prophet Isaiah wrote that the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Now, what, is, what does this mean? When God is in his proper place, when he was in the proper place for the Israelites, when he's in the proper place in your life, when you have this reverential fear of God, what leads to wisdom, but it also leads to and protects us from deception, from lies from the enemy, um, to a closer walk with God, to a more sensitive heart to the things of God. And when we don't have that, it leads to what the third point is, and that's a sensual life. It says in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind 
of impurity. So when your heart grows hard, when, when you're ignorant of the truth, you grow callous. You're not sensitive to the things of God anymore. Think about a hard callous on your body that's kind of sensitive um, or, or that's not sensitive any longer to, to pain. Uh, maybe some of you guys, you've, you've worked outside for years and you, your calluses, they're, you, you don't even feel a lot of stuff that other people would feel anymore. I think of Gene when I think of that. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, anyway, I, when I have calluses on my hands, and pretty big ones, that sometimes I can even hold Kelsey's hand and she'll be like, you just cut my hand. And I, you know, I don't even feel it. I don't think anything of that because the calluses are so bad. And it's really because I've been working out, uh, doing workouts and stuff for 20 years, and I never put like a weight glove or anything on because I walked in the weight room the first time and the trainer that we had made fun of everybody wearing gloves and told us, uh, called us Michael Jackson. So I never put on gloves anymore, so I've got these calluses that are hard and aren't sensitive to things anymore. And in the same way, our heart becomes blind, becomes hard, becomes numb, and um, desensitized to sin when we, when we continue to walk in that. And then that leads to a sensual life. So what's a sensual life? It, it ultimately is you wanna do what's satisfying to you, what is gratifying to your senses. And often this is used in terms of sexual senses, and it does mean that here. It means my body wants this, no decency, it doesn't matter, my body is gonna do what my body wants, what I physically desire. And then you become greedy for more and more of that. But it also can apply to other things, not necessarily just sexual sin, because sensual, like I said, it feels good, it tastes good, it's good to the senses. Um, think of someone who's like an adrenaline junkie. They, they base jump, they skydive, they like to climb high, high mountain peaks. Um, I, I love seeing things of people doing incredible things that you wouldn't think that a person could do, of climbing high peaks or like soloing a, a, without a rope and stuff like that. It makes my palms sweat when I see stuff like that. But there's people that they do that and they get this sensation. It's good for their senses, but what happens when they finish? They want more. I need more of that. I need more of that. And so they find the next one. Maybe it's you like scary movies. You want to see a scarier one. Maybe you like reading romantic novels. You like the feeling that it gives you. It gives you this tingly feeling. You want more of that. Maybe um, you've done well in business and you want the next deal. You're looking for the next one. You're hungry for more deals. You're hungry to accumulate more wealth. And it's like you're not sure what the end of that is. Maybe you're like me and you're a foodie and you like lots of different kinds of foods and lots of flavors and... I can't just go get a burger or something and it'd be satisfying to me. I need some Indian food, I need some Thai food, I need something with some heat, I need something different than um, just what I could go get at fast food. You're always gonna need a higher mountain to climb, you're gonna need a bigger win, a scarier movie, more money, and then it can be something that is on the surface, it is sin, more alcohol, more drugs, more sexual partners, more and more and more and it leaves you wanting. So we have this after picture that Paul painted of this life before Christ, this futile life apart from God. And this life is a life where we're darkened in understanding, we're unfilling, uncaring, our hearts ultimately grow hard if we continue to reject the truth, and we're alienated from God and given over to sensuality. What we want, what's satisfying to our senses. But as a follower of Jesus, you don't have to live this way anymore. You're set free from the world, you're set free from the world systems, and the things the world chases after because of the spirit that's been given to you. A change has occurred. What is that change? That change is Jesus. That change is Christ. I want to go back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 and, and read this. Read the change that happened. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
and which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, so by his grace, we're saved, as we talked about at the beginning. And if we're saved by his grace, he is Lord now. And then that lordship should be reflected in our life. So he continues on back in Ephesians 4 and verse 20 and says, that is not the way you learned Christ. What we just read in Ephesians 2. Okay, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So when it speaks about how we've learned Christ, it's how they were saved and then how they learned to live, to abide in the knowledge of Jesus that will keep them from the old sin that plagued their lives before. So knowing Jesus is good, knowing Jesus here is good, but knowing about him here is what ultimately is what saves, right? And so when that happens, then it's not enough just to know about him. We're called, to, um, we're called for others to be able to see that change in our life, for that change to come. The change comes through salvation, and then it's acted out in our lives. So if you come to know Jesus, you understand the way of living that was described in verse 17 through 19 is wrong. You've been taught by the Lord. You understand that it's wrong. Um, your heart isn't hard anymore, like we just read about. Your heart is sensitive to the things of God. The fruit of the Spirit should be flowing from your life. You're living for eternal things, not for temporary things. You understand um, that the world presents you with a lie a lot of times, and that truth is found in Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus embodies truth. Jesus is truth. The truth is found totally in him. So the change is salvation. You trust in Jesus. You trust in his death. You trust in his burial, his resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins. You have a transformed life. He takes a spiritually dead person, makes them alive. But what's it look like for us after? What does the after picture look like? Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Anyone in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the new has come, now the after part. So these verses that we're about to look at, these three, this is not how you're saved. This is now that you are saved. Remember, he is writing to believers. He's writing to the saints in Ephesus. He's writing to them, now that you have been saved, this is a choice that you have to make every single day. This is the way that you live now. In verse 22, it starts the after part to put off the old. Put off the old self, it says in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The life before Christ that we just read about, the verses before, corrupted by evil desires. And we still have this sinful flesh that we walk around in, and we're called to put that off every single day. So many people, they make a profession of faith and then continue to walk or live this old life. And here's the thing, this old life separated from God, that's who you are. You did not have a choice. You did not have a decision to put that off because that is who you are ultimately. But now that you have Christ, now that you've been given the Spirit, you are free to make that decision. Galatians 5.16 says, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're in Christ, you are free to choose to put off the old self because of the Spirit that's living within you. You're free to choose what's right. You weren't before you were a believer. 
Ultimately, you weren't, right, you weren't free to choose what is right, what is pleasing to God, ultimately, before you're a believer, I should say. But as a believer, you can make a conscious effort every day to recognize sin, to recognize thoughts, um, things that you have that are wrong, to repent and to obey God. God has given you the ability to do that in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God does his part in saving you and reconciling this broken relationship that was there that existed between you and God and in providing a way out of any temptation that you might face right now. So, so we're without excuse if we continue to fall back into the same sins over and over as children of God. We, ha- we have a tendency though, I mean, we have the flesh. There might be a tendency that you wanna fall back into something or that you wanna do something that you were before you were a believer or something that you're really struggling with or seems just really hard to put off. Um, if, if you don't hear anything else this morning and that's you, hear this, and that is that the power of Christ that saved you, the Holy Spirit that lives within you, it's the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. It's greater than any power or temptation that you might face. God has given you the ability to stand firm on him. But what happens sometimes is we focus so much on the sin, and we continue over and over and over again, I can't do that again. I can't think. i got to stop thinking that. And we continue to focus on the sin when Jesus is the solution. And instead of focusing on the solution, we focus on the sin or we focus on the thing that we continue to fall into rather than Jesus, rather than fixing our mind on him instead of the problem. This happens oftentimes with um, people battling addiction. And, and I don't, you know, I can't sit here and tell you everything about the chemical makeup, everything going on in someone's mind. Um, I, I, could, I could talk about the spiritual side of it, though. I could talk about what God's Word says. Um, we go downtown, you know, on Monday nights, and a lot of people, they're, they're battling addiction. They're going through stuff. And a lot of them will say that they are believers. And I believe, I believe that a lot of them are. You know, they've they've made a profession of faith, they've trusted in Christ, Um, they want to follow him, but it's so sad to sit there and have a conversation with someone, and um, this happened a a few weeks back, there's a a lady down there that's been in there for a long time, everybody calls her mama, and so there was a guy um, that was coming and getting food, said he needed an extra bag, he needed to take mama some food, and so I went up there with him, I sat and talked to him, and they're, they're talking about, we're talking about faith, and they're talking about they've trusted in Christ and stuff, and um, that God knows it's just part of my life that this is the thing that I do. I, I, I can't stop doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. And it's just so sad to know that they have freedom in Christ, but they continue to live that old way. They're focused on the sin. If you're a believer, you're, you're free from that. You've been set free. You're not in bondage to that anymore, or you, or you shouldn't be. But as a believer, you have the ability to say no to that thing. You have the ability to put it off. And it's the lie from the enemy that that's who you are, that that's ultimately who you are. But it doesn't have to be a drug addiction, though. It might be that your mind's consumed with with career, with social media, with your kids' success, or with keeping up a certain image for other people to look at and for the world to approve of, and it's become an idol in your life. You have the ability to put that off if you're a believer. And what happens is after you live this new life, after you've put this off for a while, after it's something that's become a habit, the old sin that plagued you, the things that you thought, it won't even cross your mind anymore a lot of times. I know a lot of you guys, you've experienced that in your life. There's been a bad habit or something that you, maybe you got rid of decades ago and you don't even think about it anymore. And it's like, there's no way I could go back to that because that's not who I am anymore. 
because that has ultimately been defeated. And that's how it should be with our old life that was apart from Christ versus our new life in Christ. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're supposed to put off the old, and then there's another thing that he tells us right after that, and that is to renew our minds. In verse 23, it says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So you, you put off the old self, you're getting rid of the junk, and now it says renew the spirit of your mind. So the Christian life has to go beyond head knowledge, but it must also still include head knowledge, and head knowledge that influences and changes everything about how you think and influences your way of thinking and then how you act. Um, it's not just knowing facts, but it's the ability to set your mind on things, striving to do what is right, striving to be more like Jesus. Renew your mind with godly things. Romans 8, 5 says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So, so fill your mind with things of God. Fill your mind with the word of God, spending time with your heavenly father. I know our lives get chaotic, they're busy. Find time to be in solitude alone with the Lord. Find time, instead of clicking on that YouTube video or that social media that's just like meaningless like we talked about, find stuff to listen to that is um, Christian teaching, preaching, worship God. Not stuff that just gratifies your senses for a time that's just temporary, but stuff that'll affect your soul, give you eternal hope, and then allow you to be that light to others that you're called to be. In Romans 12 too, it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And not, not being conformed to the world means not resembling the world, not following the world. And, and this is because the world ultimately is opposed to the righteousness of Christ. The world says that sin is fun and desirable. Scripture teaches that ultimately it's self-destructive. The world says, do what feels good. Jesus says, follow me. The world says, to, to feed your appetite. Jesus says, deny yourself. So why will your lifestyle as a believer look very different than the world? Because as a believer, your pursuit is the righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness. And that's not what the world is ever going to pursue. And if you are in Christ, God has set you apart. He set you apart for his service. And the unbelieving world that might acknowledge there's a God, because there are people that, are, that aren't believers, right, that would say, like, there's probably a God that exists. That probably is something that's true. There probably is a God out there. What do they think of? Even a lot of times in the church, what do people think of when they think about a God? That he exists ultimately for, for me. He exists for my pleasure, um, to do what makes me happy, and it's backwards, right? Because we were created for him. We were created for his glory. We exist for him, to point others to him. And, and the amazing thing about it is when we let go of control and we begin to live that way, that I exist for him and I exist for his glory, rather than trying to find ourselves or do what makes us feel happy or, or, or just whatever our feelings are leading us to do at a certain moment in time, that's when you're truly going to discover your purpose in living and ultimately discover what God has created you for, what he created you to do. And so we get rid of the old, renew our minds, and then finally it says put on the new. In verse 24 it says put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this completes the transformation 
every single day. You've been transformed, you're transformed spiritually um, forever when you're born again. Nothing can change that. But every single day, you can choose to put off the old self that was sinful and corrupt to renew your mind and to put on the new self. You can choose, make a choice every day. And, and once you start to do it, and once it becomes a part of who you are and you're walking with the Lord and you're following him, it's not something that's fabricated. It's because it's who you are. You can make a choice to love God, to love others, to serve God, to serve others. You can choose to be obedient to the commands of Christ. You can choose to live out your calling as saints, contributing to the body, sharing the gospel, discipling others. It's not who you were before. You couldn't make that choice before, but in Christ, you can make that choice. It's a change of clothes. The, the, the title of the message today was New Clothes. Um, we were in Kentucky back in the fall, and some of you guys know about the, the flooding and stuff that happened up there. And I mean, it was a mess if you didn't see it, but it was a few months after that, and uh, we were in East Kentucky doing some work at this house that um, it, it looked like it should probably just go ahead and be, be torn down. There was some flood damage and stuff, but the person um, wasn't getting help, wasn't getting help from the government or anything, wanted to try and salvage some stuff. And so we're in there, and we're basically ripping down the walls, and insulation is just coming all over us. I mean, it was like 40 degrees, rain's coming down on us. It's, um, we're, we're muddy, we're wet, and then we have insulation just stuck to us. It was disgusting. It was a disgusting job. And I did not want to get in the car and drive back to Kentucky with all that all over me. I wanted more than anything a hot shower. Okay, so I, I want to get a hot shower, get a change of clothes, put these nasty clothes in a bag, which I actually did, and then found later before I went to Kenya that the shoes I was going to take had mold all over them because I left them there for months and forgot to get them out of that bag. So um, we go get a hot shower. How gross, how nasty would it have been if I get out of that hot shower and then I put on the old clothes, the old socks, the old underwear, the old everything nasty that I had on before the shower. But that's often how we live, even though we've been called out of that and we're free to live for God. And we keep falling back to this former way of life. These old dirty clothes represent the sin nature. And the new clothes are the clothes that are created in Christ to be righteous. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, the old man is instinctively rebellious against God. The new man is instinctively righteous and holy, and you will be a slave to one of them, to Christ, to righteousness, or a slave to sin. But they're so opposed to one another, you cannot be both. We have to put on the new person. There has to be a break with the old. Jesus isn't just some religion that you add to the old person. The old person has to go and give way, to give way, to the new life. Some of us want to hold on to the old, though. You know, maybe, you're, maybe your faith is, doesn't amount more to, I go to church a couple times a month because the person that I'm with wants me to. Or have some religion in my life. This would be like me having those nasty, wet, muddy, stinky clothes on, and I just find some clean clothes and put them on over top of it. It's still gonna be disgusting. It's still gonna smell bad. I spray some Axe body spray all over it and try to clean it up and then I just smell like a middle school boy, right? 
The old has to be put to death. In Romans 6, 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus died this death for sin, and we are called to die a death to ourselves. The old person before Christ was crucified with Jesus. Live like you believe that. Live like you believe that. Jesus has done the work, and we, we're able, we're capable of living for him. Now, Paul wrote the book of Colossians around the same time that he wrote Ephesians, probably about 30 years uh, after Christ ascended into heaven, and he wrote it from his first stay in prison or house arrest in Rome in the early AD 60s. It's one of the, the prison epistles, and I want to read what he says in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, because, you know, he's thinking the same things. He's writing a lot of the same things to the different churches, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and so I want us to see what he says here. He says, starting in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old, um, the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Such a stark contrast. And maybe um, you're like some of the, the young people, some of the teenagers I meet with, and you got saved when you were really young, and you're like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It didn't seem like there was that much of a difference. I met with, with uh, some of our teenagers last week, and they were saying that. Like, you know, I got saved young. I don't really know the difference there in eight-year-old me and, and nine-year-old me. And so I, I would encourage you, rather than just looking at, and part of it is looking at the fruit that comes from your life, the stuff that you do, but rather than just comparing yourself to what you do versus what others do, I would challenge you to examine your hearts. What is it that you desire most? Who do you love most? Um, what does your world revolve around? What does your mind gravitate towards when you're alone? Because the new you is, is created in the likeness of Christ. In verse 24, after it says to put on the new self, it says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This new you is created in God's um, likeness and bearing the image of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it puts it this way, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, Adam has sinned, um, we are born in Adam, we all sin, we all choose to sin in our lives. It says we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you know Jesus, if you're following Jesus, if you've been born again, this is who you were created to be. Jesus is pure, he is righteous, and he is true. And so are we, not because of our righteousness, but when we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That part can't be achieved by our own merit, but by receiving his righteousness. And as believers, we have an eternal home. We're already free from sin's eternal penalty. But we're also free from that former way of life when we're living right now. We're free to live abundant life. We're free from that sin that plagued us before. Jesus has set you free from sin if you're born again. And if you choose to go back into the prison cell, that's not because God hasn't provided a way out. Because he has. Instead, choose to put off the old self, renew your mind, and put on the new self. This lifestyle commitment for holiness, obedience, and purity, which is possible for believers through Jesus and his sacrifice to you. And, and ultimately, we will fall short because we still live in the flesh. We will fall short of living perfection in this lifetime. And when that happens, there's grace available for that. 
There's grace for that. I want you guys to bow your heads this morning for me. Maybe you're here this morning and it's like you can't live the new life because you've never first received new life in Christ. I want you to know this morning, the God of the universe, the God who created everything, he loves you so much. And he demonstrated that love for you by sending his son to live a perfect life and be a perfect sacrifice for you dying a death on a cross, a brutal death. And he did that for you. And we still choose to sin against him. And the Bible says the penalty for our sin, the wages of sin, is death. That's an eternal death, separated from God. But the free gift of God, through what Jesus has done, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe you've never received that new life. I'd invite you this morning to confess your heart to him, if that's you, and say, God, I confess that I am a sinner I have rebelled against you. I've had some religion in my life. But I've never really truly received you as Lord. Today I pray that you would come into my life. That you make me a new person. I believe, Jesus, that you were God. That you died for me and that you rose again from the dead. Today I make you Lord of my life. Give me your spirit. Make me a new creation. Thank you for saving me. If you're here this morning and, and it's been a struggle for you putting off the old, the old person and um, living this new life in Christ, I just want to encourage you. The, the spirit of God that is within you is greater than what's in the world, all right? I want to pray for you guys. Lord, I just pray for this congregation. I pray for, for this church, Lord, on this hill. And I thank you, Lord, for each one that you brought here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to put off the old and renew our minds and live the new life, the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you for your righteousness, for your holiness, God. We thank you for allowing us to be part of your kingdom, to be part of your family, and to be the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus here on this earth, shining the light of Christ in a dark world. I pray that you would just be with those here who are hurting, those who have things um, that maybe they're not sharing with anyone, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just empower them and that you would just be with them as they go through this day and throughout this week. God, we thank you so much for your grace and we thank you, Lord, for the love that you have shown us in Christ. We give you all glory and praise for everything. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.